So here we have an episode where we are first introduced to the Trill, a race that will never be seen again because these aren't the Trill from DS9. I want to comment on that first. I've kind of already brought this up over on DSpace 9, but to reiterate, the Trill as presented here are so fundamentally different from the Trill over on DSpace 9 that they are a separate race. There is no hint of the transporter having any impact or effect whatsoever on any of the Trill hosts or or the main you know host bodies, <clears throat> excuse me, the hosts or the parasites whatsoever over on Deep Space Nine. And then we have the fact. Let's see, I actually wrote it all down, didn't I? Yep. Then we have the fact that it's being referred to exclusively as a parasite, and the way that the the symbiote functions is that it completely takes over the body of its host, to the point where its host doesn't even matter. In fact, if you're paying attention, the, the host bodies effectively die for the symbiote in this episode. Ignoring the fact that the original host body in this episode does die, the new host being sent is like, hi, I'm the host. And then once she's implanted, she goes away. And the idea is she's going to be implanted for the rest of her life until she dies. So that woman who was that host is gone as of the implantation, which is very against how the trail work later. I already mentioned the beaming thing. Uh, they mentioned how extremely difficult and selective they are to do it, which you know could be argued to ex to work in this episode, though I don't buy it for a second. But the one that really sells it is the fact that Curzon Dax exists. Never mind the fact that Judzia was actually in Starfleet Academy right about this time. Or, excuse me, no, I'm wrong about that, I'm sorry. Had to have been graduating from the Academy about this time, excuse me. And I believe there's actually records on that. But the point being, a, they act like they have no information on the Trill. None. They don't even have basic medical information on the Trill. And yet these people are already a part of Starfleet, as of now, and have been since before the beginning of season, or excuse me, the end of season three since Curzon and Cisco were friends prior to Wolf 359. <sighs> yeah, I, no, no, this doesn't line up at all. As I've said many, many, many times, they should have just called them something different over on Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah, I'm not even bringing up the visual differences, which are honestly the easiest things to hand wave away, funnily enough. So, I don't have much to say about this episode. There's effectively two threads. Let's go over the thread I like the least first. And that's the romance thread. This episode was actually originally completely absent any romantic tint. And it kind of shows because it's kind of grafted in, even though it takes the majority of the screen time. And it also, how do I phrase this? It doesn't do anything. I know that I have a bit of a reputation for being anti-romantic, but the hard truth is what I am against is pointless romance. The romance of this episode does and means nothing. It's Crusher having a crush on a guy, and then, oh no, and the end. I challenge you right now, explain to me one way in, this, in which this romance matters. Now, in case you don't know what I mean, let me explain by that. Uh, if you're going to do a romance of the week thing, I've said this so many times, make it relevant to the plot, the setting, or the characters. Now, the relevance of their romance to the plot is non-existent. In fact, it could be argued the romance is the plot, although I would argue against that, since I find the actual plot legitimately fascinating in this episode, but we'll talk about that last. Is it relevant to the setting? No. <laughs> Especially since this race, whatever the hell they are, because they sure as hell aren't Trill, will never be heard of or seen again. 
So that leaves character. Now this is the most obvious one. Using a romance of the week as a way to elevate or exemplify part of a character or characterization or be a part of character growth. Now this is usually when Star Trek does a romance of the week, this is where it tends to work out. Not always, of course. In fact, I would argue that it's usually the exceptions when the romance of the week actually works out. But I challenge you to say that this means anything for Crutch, for Beverly Crusher as a character, because I don't see it. I really don't. It's just her, and then her challenging what she found interesting about him, and then she decides to go for him, and then she decides not to go for him. I'm not even sure I should be using the word him here, actually, based on circumstances, but whatever. He lies about his nature several times to her. He later on says, it didn't occur to me to say it, and yet there's multiple times in which he deliberately deceives his way around the fact that he is actually this thing down here and not this thing up here. Why is that, do you think? Like, why engage in this active deception? Now, we could come up with answers for that. Maybe other people are just uncomfortable with the idea of a parasitic relationship. Although some people think this is actually... Uh, commensalism instead of parasitism but that's a debatable fact either way this is definitely a the host exists only to be the body for the parasite kind of a situation so so maybe that's why maybe he keeps it hidden because other people don't like that idea i mean i didn't like that idea back in conspiracy so you know but this is a little different than the bluegills right just food for thought then <laughs> There's a scene where Picard is actually very disquieted by the fact that this guy's pursuing Beverly. I thought that was a nice touch. Just a quiet little thing in the background. Like, he just he's just like, eh, whatever. And uh, then the host dies. <laughs> I kind of already mentioned that. You know, the fact that the host bodies effectively don't matter. No one cares about or, or even mentions in the episode the significance of, of the fact that an individual did die and, as I've argued, dies again on camera later on with the female body. Now, of course, he's obviously not a murdering per person, but this is the kind of cultural shift and bias I would expect to be made an issue of. This could be how the, it was, this would matter for the setting, by the way. Because the topic of, is what you do right, is this acceptable, is a topic that could be explored based on the nature of the total destruction of the host in service of the parasite. By the way, that's why I do call it a parasite rather than a... Uh, uh, commensalism, uh, excuse me, commensalism circumstance, making sure I'm pronouncing that right, because the host body is effectively annihilated. I'm saying that wrong. The host entity is effectively annihilated, and the host body is all that remains, hence the parasit parasitism being defined as the, the actual injury or destruction or harm to the host in service of the parasite. And I think the annihilation of the individual would qualify. Just my opinion. Anyway, so nobody seems to care about that. We just had an episode all about where a, a cultural society where everyone willingly chooses to commit suicide at age of 60 and the cultural sides and phenomenon of what that could be, and yet here we have this and it's not even brought up. I just find that strange. If anything, the closest thing to being brought up is Beverly Crusher's own examination of what exactly she found engaging about this person. Specifically, the, the nature of what it is she found. You know, she says she's in love with him, but this is TV. Most people in TV, when they say they love someone, don't mean it. 
they mean something else. They mean they like them, or they are infatuated with them, or they find them hot, or they find them sexy, or they want to engage in some kind of thing that might eventually turn into love, but very rarely do they mean love. And she questions this. This leads me to one of the only really good scenes in this, where she talks about this kid who was 11 when she was 8, and he was beautiful and gorgeous, and she talks about this whole daydream that she used to construct about him. And I was sitting here going, okay, yeah, that's kind of awesome. Why? Because I think that's an apt metaphor for what Crusher actually feels for Odan. I really do. Because I think this is basically what is usually referred to as puppy love, which can develop into something more. But on its own, it's like the, the most threadbare surface level of romantic entanglement. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I brought this up back during uh, The Price with Troy, right? You know, the idea of there's nothing necessarily wrong with enjoying a Sunday, right? It's, it's just if you eat nothing but Sundays, that's, that's going to cause some issues. And it is my firm belief that what Crusher had with Odin was a Sunday situation, a chocolate Sunday situation. I could be wrong about that, but based on my reading, based on her, and based on how she reacts throughout the episode, that's, that's what I'm hearing. Now, okay, that's nice, and that's fun, and it's an interesting fling, but it does kind of detract from some of the, 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 the supposed emotional strength of the episode. Oh, yeah, that reminds me. I got a comment about the music. Because the music was bad in this episode, in my opinion, of course. Sorry, I have to amend that because I don't want to say something so demonstrably. It was object subjectively bad. I did not care for it at all. It, the tension music. Oh my gosh, there's a ship coming up from the planet. Or the moon, actually. Or how about the, the strings music of love as Riker is standing there staring at her for an uncomfortably long period of time. No. Welcome to the Rick Berman era of music, ladies and gentlemen. <sighs> Moving on. The, uh... What? The, I swear I'm segueing here. It's just, I'm being blown away by this, because the episode, Star Trek in general likes to do the da-da-da thing right before a commercial break, right? Well, the episode pulls that right after Beverly decides to turn and look at Riker, who's giving her the stare, as I just mentioned. And then it's like, da-da-da, oh, fade to black. What kind of commercial break is that? So then we have some scenes where the two of them are separate, and they're, all, they're both like, oh, God, I just feel terrible, and I totally miss the other person. Oh, then they're together. Oh, everything's wonderful. And she sneezes. <laughs> and then they're together. And then Jonathan Frakes has to kiss Gates McFadden, which, which you can tell it's super awkward. That being said, I do want to give some praise to Jonathan Frakes, because he effectively plays Odon in this episode. He does a good job of it. He does play a completely separate character, and he manages a lot of the mannerisms and portrayals and speech patterns, you know, that kind of thing. He does a good job, so I don't want, I don't want to dismiss that. Then there's a, a reasonably good scene where Picard reaches out to, to Beverly. He's like, look, I understand you're going through something hard, and she just kind of hugs him like, oh, Jean-Luc. And that scene would make a lot more impact if this was love instead of puppy love. So then, Riker, of course, you know, Riker, they, they can't pull him out of Riker. They don't say this, which actually bothers me. 
Because the obvious answer here is just keep planting him through bodies bit by bit. You know, you get him into a new human host who is willing, and then that human host can carry him for a few hours or days or whatever before it starts to get too much, and they pull him out and put him into a new host. It makes perfect sense that they don't want to do that during negotiations. Why? Because the negotiations are already super tense, and it already took effort to convince them that Riker was Odan. So that makes sense. They want to maintain a level of stability so they don't disrupt an already critical situation. I'm with that. But then the negotiations are successfully concluded and they start zooming off and she puts him in stasis. And she flat out says he'll only survive in stasis earlier in the episode for like an hour. And it's going to be like two hours before they reach the ship. Why not just put him in another hose for two hours? I really don't understand why there's this fake tension right at the end. Anyways, uh, let's talk about the main plot, the plot that's actually interesting. Although I do got to say really quick, what is it with Crusher's romance episodes being bad? You guys remember Sub Rosa, right? Often considered one of the worst, if not the worst, TNG episode. Although I think Code of Honor gives it some challenge. But we'll see when I get to Sub Rosa. That's like season seven, so we got a ways to go. Anyways, the main plot is actually really engaging to me because I love the construction of the setup. Now, as I mentioned, or maybe I didn't mention this, Jerry Taylor wrote this episode, and it does kind of show. But the weird thing is, I can kind of tell that almost all of the romance plot was written by Jerry Taylor, whereas the core premise was written by the person who put in the spec script, who actually originally wrote the idea that they bought. Because, A, it's not her style to go into this kind of political, interesting, uh, actually geopolitical, to be specific, interesting dynamic. And, B, it's like this much of the episode. But I love the concept. You have a planet. This planet has its own powers and nations and whatnot. And then it's got two moons. Each of these moons is inhabited by people from the original planet. Settlers, basically. Colonists, if you want to put it into such terms. And they are separate political entities from the original. And each one of them has conflicts with each other and, it's implied, with the core planet. The main reason they probably don't have any significant military efforts with the core planet is because the core planet could defeat them. But the two moons... Well, they can fight each other all they want. The two colonies can fight each other as much as they choose to. Then we have the dilemma. These two people have already been militiant, uh, militant excuse me, in the past and have actually had a war or, or close to war between each other multiple times. But now one of the moons, the Alpha Moon, I believe it was, uh, has actually found a way to pull the, the from the planet to make a clean, renewable, relatively cheap energy source. Now that's incredibly valuable. Anyone who is, functions in any society whatsoever, even a modern society, never mind a science fiction one, will tell you how valuable relatively renewable, clean, cheap, etc. energy is. So that makes sense how, how significant that of, a, of a boon that is to the Alpha Moon. They don't even have to explain that. But it's causing issues and difficulties for the beta moon. In fact, it's causing ge significant uh, geological and, and, and uh, environmental, I guess is the word I want to use here. That feels like a wrong choice, but whatever. Significant environmental issues for the people on the beta moon. And in fact, will eventually cause the beta moon to effectively be uninhabitable. So we have a situation where the alpha moon basically needs this, I say needs, wants this to continue surviving at the level of existence they have made, but it will be significantly parasitic to the beta moon. You can kind of see the parallel there, which is never mentioned because, again, they focus on the romance plot instead. And I really wish they had focused more on that plot, especially because I'm very curious what compromise they make, because the negotiations succeed. War doesn't happen. Why? How? 
How do you resolve that? Because that is a genuinely interesting dilemma. One of the only things that came to my mind off the top of my head was the beta mood being willing to basically gift or sell at, at significantly reduced cost energy to the alpha moon in exchange for the alpha moon, you know, not devastating the beta moon with its existence. But that again remains a parasitic relationship. The, the beta mood doesn't really get anything out of that other than continuing to survive. So what do they get in return? What did the alpha moon offer? And all these things are completely unanswered because we had to focus on Crusher smooching Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> the, the Enterprise apparently has a spa. Did you guys know that? I kind of like that. I'm a little surprised they don't have like a, a hol I, I guess the holodecks are still relatively new. But like, can you imagine a holodeck which is dedicated to basically being a resort? Voyager kind of played with that idea, you know, like a regular program. But imagine there's like one, it's not a full holodeck, it's like a room that has holographic panels to show like sun and beach and wind and all that fun stuff. And then they go in and they relax, they dip their fingers and stuff and blah, blah, blah. Just food for thought. I did like the spa scene actually, in general. Uh, who attacked the peace envoy, do you think? It's another point that's never answered. A ship comes up claims to be an escort, which was never released, no security codes are given, and they decide to attack the peace envoy. It's mentioned later in the episode that there are extremists who are going to assassinate the leader in order to try and provoke a war. That was eventually curtailed, and this was one of the things that he does to prove that he is himself to the leader of, I think it was the Alpha Moon. Now I bring, or maybe it was the Beta, I don't know, it was one of the leaders. Point being... That, again, implies that there are factions within the factions of the moons, that each moon is not unified, that there might be individual nations or political parties or even extremist groups or terrorists or whatever you want to call it who are specifically pushing for conflict with the other. Like, for example, I can imagine several people on the beta moon basically saying the mere fact that the alpha moon is willing to do this, that their leadership is willing to basically devastate our moon for their own benefit shows that we can never have a coexistence with them and we should just wipe them out. Thus, being the kind of faction that would be like, ah, attack the peace envoy, and that's the end of it, right? Never talked about again. I do want to give one small bit of praise here. Riker, actual Riker, um, there's a bit where there's like, okay, would it, Riker says, would a human host work? And just without hesitation, I volunteer. Picard says, number one, the risks. And Riker says, yeah, weigh that against the cost of war. It's actually a really good scene. It, it pretty much shows Riker... I've heard several people say, why do I like Riker so much as a character? It seems like this. Not only do I like Jonathan Frakes, because he's Jonathan Frakes, uh, who is a goofball, but also a reasonably good actor and an excellent director. Uh, Jonathan Frakes is, is, is part of it, but another part of it is because Riker, when he's written well, when he's interesting or good, is someone who is... I don't know, kind of the Starfleet ideal in its own way, which I know some people think is boring. But I personally find it to be a good thing. You know, I enjoy the person who is saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this incredibly dangerous thing, which could be worse than death. Why? Because it could avert a war. No hesitation. No doubt. And it's not like he's going in blind. He understands the severity. He's just, this has to happen. Let's do it. I like that. I found myself curious about another thing, which is also never discussed in the episode. Why are the Trill... Excuse me, why are the fake Trills so interested in this planet? We find out that he actually negotiated peace with these people basically you know, years and years and years ago, masquerading as his own father, which is another point of him lying, by the way. I just feel like pointing that out because he says, I've never occurred to me to lie to you, which is a complete lie by itself because there's so many other instances where he flat out lies about his true nature. But moving on, 
But that means that the, the, the fake Trill here had a vested interest, for whatever reason, in maintaining this peace. Now, maybe it's just him. I mean, we know Curzon Dax is part of the diplomatic corps as well, and therefore, maybe that's just a Trill thing. Maybe this is the inspiration for Curzon. I don't know. But what I do know is I find the idea fascinating. It would have been interesting to tie these people into the fake Trill in some way, to make it so that they have a vested interest in either maintaining peaceful relations or maybe they have you know, trade significance, or maybe they have their own symbiotic relationship with these people to the point where they rely on them and depend on them, and a war would completely disrupt that, which would have the domino effect on the Trill people. Just food for thought. All this stuff which is left on the cutting room floor because we want to see romance. I know I'm sounding a little bit... But I didn't remember disliking this episode as much until I rewatched it. The music was a big part of that. I'll freely admit, I had actually forgotten just how love the music was. But again, the fact that this episode spends an inordinate, 80% of the episode is dedicated towards this romance of the week. But it's so vacuous. And at least, I don't know. I got nothing. I got nothing. I hope you've enjoyed, such as it is. I apologize for my nose. I'm still stuffed up and already having issues. I, I apologize. I will see you guys next time.